We live in interesting times. And there are no shortage of voices out there, whether it be in blogs or emails or things that are going on, saying, Pastor, you need to preach against masks and against the government. On the other side, Pastor, you need to preach for masks and loving your neighbor. Or when the election season comes and preaching about who to vote for and what matters the most. I am not saying that there isn't a place for these discussions, but I've heard you. We have heard you, the eldership and leadership here at Heritage. And this morning, I want to share with you what we are about as a church. I want to share with you our mission. The people that God has called us to be. The chart that he has called us and the course that he has called us to sail. And if that is not for you, then I, with blessing, there are other churches. But here at Heritage, we want to call you up to what God has called us to. That transcends these things. Don't let this divide the church. Let's be a people of a higher calling, of a more glorious mission, of a more upright purpose. Thomas Aquinas said that if the ship's captain's greatest priority is to keep his ship safe, he will never take it out of dock, never take it out of port. But a ship is built for sailing on the open water, for a purpose, for a mission. And though the waters may be rough and at times tumultuous, we are on a mission, church, and this mission is this, to make followers of Jesus Christ by living the gospel life among the nations, full stop. This is our mission. It has not changed. In 2,000 years, it has not changed. Do you know what? The enemy's tactics haven't changed either. His tactics are to get us focused on lesser things and divided over temporal issues. But we are called to make followers of Jesus Christ by living the gospel life among the nation. Now this is, this is our mission as a church. And this morning I want to talk to you about this mission. This is not just a, a cutesy statement, but the product of so much passion of, from God's word that tracks major themes from Genesis to Revelation. And then next week we're going to go back into Hebrews chapter 6, going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. Going verse by verse and understanding who Christ is and what he has done. To make followers of Jesus Christ. To make followers of who? Not Nathan Smith. Not some celebrity pastor. Not some denomination. Not some cutesy concept. We want you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Him alone. Why Jesus George Peters, the great missiologist, says that 
Christianity is Christocentric, that at the center of our faith is not just an ambiguous set of rules or beliefs or mythology, but at the center of our faith is a person and his name is Jesus. Jesus himself said that, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5 verse 17. Now, I said open your Bibles because we're going to go to quite a number of verses. So there'll be some that will park out longer than others, and I'll direct you there. Feel free to turn and to follow along. But I want to paint a little bit of a broad picture this morning for you. The Bible is about Jesus. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus, beginning with the Moses and, and all the prophets, he interpreted to his disciples all that the scriptures had to say about himself. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus on the Emmaus Road opens up the Bible and beginning with Moses, the Torah, the Old Testament, the prophets, he begins to expound everything that God's word has to say about himself. In other words, the Bible, the main message, the main thrust is Jesus Christ. Everything's fulfilled in him. Everything points to him. Everything is completed in him. He died on the cross to fulfill the prophets and he's coming again one day to finish it and make it right. The Bible is about Jesus. One of the reasons that we get up here and we preach God's word verse by verse and we exposit it, explain it, unpack it, is because by unpacking the Bible and by unpacking God's word in its majesty, we are actually unveiling Christ in all his glory. The Bible is about Jesus. Jesus was the message of the early church. You know, some people say we need to get back to the way that the early church did things and, and worship and polity and understanding and all those are good discussions, but let me say this. Do not misunderstand that the message of the early church, the prime thing about the early church is that everywhere they went, they talked about Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 18 to 21, this is Paul's testimony. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the message of the early church and it should be our message. Jesus is the center of our worship. Romans 16, Paul says, to the only God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Truly. Amen. Truly, truly. Jesus Christ, it is through him that God is glorified. Colossians 1.18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Jesus Christ, might be preeminent. One of the griefs of today with so many things and so many voices, pulpits and Christian blogs are filled with so many messages and yet so many of them are absent the glory of Jesus Christ. 
What is the church to be known for? Not its politics, not its activism, not all of its positions, but rather it is to be known by Jesus Christ. And when we're known by Christ, and as Christ, and we smell like Christ, and we look like Christ, it changes the way we live and engage in this world. But when people see us, they see Jesus. Jesus is the good news. He's the gospel. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, for I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our goal is to know Christ and to know his cross, to know his gospel and his good news and how it transforms us from the inside out. That's why we're studying through the book of Hebrews so that we might know Christ, know his cross, know his priesthood, know his work that he does on our behalf. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 4, the apostle Paul says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance how you should respond to the government it's not what it says i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day first importance doesn't mean that we can't talk about these other things but let us better be sure that we get the priority right. Jesus is our unshakable hope. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 through 14 to keep working hard. Fight the good fight of the faith until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, Jesus, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the alone who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has ever seen nor can see. To him be honor and glory forevermore. Amen. Brothers and sisters, join with me, join with us. Let's exalt Jesus. That is what the Bible is about. That is what we are called to be as a people, to make followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus. This is why we preach Christ crucified, risen, and returning. All else is secondary. He should be preeminent in everything we do in our ministry here at Heritage. He should be easily seen. Jesus should be so commonplace that you have to trip over him to get anywhere. So evident and visible. He is to be known, savored, and enjoyed. He's not just your ticket out of hell and into heaven, but he is a relationship that we want you to enter into and enjoy and love being in his presence. To love spending time with him as he wants to spend time with you. And he is the standard of all that we do. He must be. He is the standard of holiness. He's the standard of righteousness. He's the standard of goodness and truth and grace. Knowing Jesus is such a priority here. I can't speak to other churches. There are some that are doing it great. I'm not berating them. No, I'm just saying that this is who we are. 
This is who we want to be, and we don't always get it right. We're a broken and imperfect church in so many ways, but Jesus Christ is our captain. We want you to know him. Right out of these doors, we have a resource center where you can pick up resources and grow and learn. Heritage members, we have a gift for you. We have several hundred copies of Gentle and Lowly by Ray Ortland. Sorry, Dane Ortland. A wonderful book. Teaches you about the heart of Jesus. We were able to get these. They're free of charge to you. We just ask that you take only one as a family. And here's my request. If you pick up one of those free books, you're picking it up, and it's a commitment that you will read it. And please do not start Christmas shopping early and pick it up and give it to somebody else. But that's our gift to you. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to grow in him and love him. We are called to make followers of Jesus Christ. Make followers. Because this is Jesus' final command in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even or to the end of the age. Now you may ask and say, but wait, who makes the followers? Do we make the followers? No. The Holy Spirit is the one who converts and saves. But we make followers by upholding Jesus and by upholding gospel to the world so that the Holy Spirit can work through our witness and through our proclamation to redeem and save people from hell for his glory according to his purposes. We make followers by upholding Jesus. We make followers by showing them the truth, by loving them with Christ. Matthew 28, Jesus' last command is the church's and must be the church's first priority. His last command is our first marching order to make disciples, followers. A disciple is one who follows. What is a follower, though? I want to give you three things, actually, here with that. What is a follower? Because... It says that we are to baptize the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want to define that follower in that Trinitarian framework. First of all, a follower is one who is learning to look like Jesus. A follower is one who is learning to look like Jesus. A disciple of Christ looks like Christ. The Apostle Paul says, I want Christ formed in you, that you come to the measure of the fullness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that you are the aroma of Christ. To be a follower is learning to look more like Christ. Number two, a follower is one who is learning to love what the Father loves. A follower is learning to love what the Father loves. And what does the Father love? Chiefly among all else, the Father loves his Son. Matthew 3, 17. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I love my Son. 
and a follower is learning to love what the father loves, then chiefly he's going to love the son. The father also loves holiness. Be holy even as I am holy. A follower doesn't just say, I have to be holy. A follower longs to be holy. Loves to be holy. Wants to be bathed in holiness. Wants to pursue holiness. Now we get it wrong and we make mistakes. But we're learning, growing in holiness. You know what else the Father loves? And I I love the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John... He's one of the most prolific users of the Greek word cosmos, which means world. You know what else the Father loves? For God so loved the world. And a follower loves the peoples of the world. It's one of the marks of a disciple. So a follower is one who's learning to look like Jesus. A follower is one who is learning to love what the Father loves. And then Lastly, a follower is one who is learning to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. A follower is one who is learning to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Being a follower does not begin with doing and the Christian task list and check boxes. The Christian life and being a follower of Christ begins with Jesus in John 15 where he says what? Abide in me. A follower begins with abiding. Being in the presence of God. Learning to to stop hurrying so much so he can enjoy the presence of God. To be in the presence of his Savior and Heavenly Father and in the power of the Spirit. And as you abide, John 15, 7 through 11, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. A follower abides as he abides in the love of God. He bears fruit, and that fruit brings glory to the Father and joy to us. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God wants to give you joy? The Christian life is not one of empty duty, but of joy-filled obedience that springs from a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Abide, abide. You see, a follower is learning. A follower is learning, which means he doesn't always get it right. It means she she doesn't always get it right. A follower enjoys the presence of God. A follower wants to obey their heavenly father. And a follower wants others to follow. Come experience what I experience. Rise to greater heights than where I have reached so that you might bring glory to God. We want to make followers of Jesus Christ by living the gospel life 
the life that overflows with the gospel truth of who Christ is and what he has done. That in our following, that the gospel is clearly seen. Now turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 through 12. The Christian life should be the gospel life. And what is the gospel life? I don't think there's any clearer illustration of the Christian life or the gospel life than Matthew 5. Jesus, in his first sermon in the Mount of Beatitudes, is teaching the people what the blessed life looks like. He's not saying this is how you get the blessed life, but the word construction intimates that rather those who have been blessed with God's love, this is what they overflow. This is what characterizes them. And this is the gospel life. Matthew 5, verse 2 through 11. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be sanctified. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are broken, spiritual beggars. They realize they have nothing, need nothing, or they, actually, they have nothing. They need everything. They can do nothing. That the only thing that they deserve is hell. I was playing Mario Kart with my kids yesterday. I won one and lost one. And, I, and my, my son shot me with a red shell. And I said, I don't deserve that. And he responded back and said, no, the only thing you deserve is hell. <laughs> and I was like, doggone it, dude. Man, theology in Mario Kart. He laid it on me. But you know what? He's right. The only thing that I deserve is hell. The only thing that you deserve Beloved is hell. And the believer begins in recognition. I deserve nothing. I am a sinner in need of God's grace. And Jesus said, blessed are you. For now you get it. Because once you realize that you have nothing and that you need everything, I want to give you everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not a bravado. It's not a, an arrogance in the church. It is a brokenness. This is why I say Sunday after Sunday, we are a church of broken people because our spiritual journey begins in brokenness. But it ends in joy. Now, stay with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, who recognize their sin. 
their sexual appetite, their deceptiveness, the raw sin within them that still clings to them and they mourn it. They don't treat it lightly. They treat it seriously even though that they fail at it or their gossip or their pride or arrogance. Blessed are those who recognize their sin. Brother and sister, if you start mourning the sins of the world before you mourn your own sins, by the time you mourn the world and then other people around you and then you get to yourself, you're going to be like, I don't look half bad. But if you begin mourning your own sin and see yourself as the Apostle Paul saw himself, the chiefest of sinners, by the time you get to the world, you say, but for the grace of God, there would I be. And it breeds compassion. The world is, the church is too busy mourning the sins of the world instead of beginning with themselves. May we have the grace and revival of this church falling on his face and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Blessed are the meek. This is the attitude, the gentle kindness that's been tenderized by grace. The gospel life is characterized by a hunger and thirst for righteousness and mercy. By purity, pure of heart, by peacemaking, being reconcilers, part of our ambassadorial work to be reconcilers. But here's the thing, after you live this humble, broken, meek, hungry for righteousness, mercy-giving, pure, reconciling life, all of these wonderful things, after you do this, here's how the world will respond to you. Verse 10, they will hate you for it and persecute you for it. But what is our response? Anger, rights. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward, not in America, but in heaven. Now you may say, I'm, I'm bringing it out. I'm, I'm full broadside this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is just the word of God. Your reward is great in heaven. Stop living for today. Your reward is great in heaven. Stop wondering why the world hates you and is trying to strip you of your rights. May we be like Christ who is willing to give up everything for the sake of going to the cross and loving his neighbor. I know I'm going to get some emails after this sermon. I just ask that if you write me a letter, sign your name, uh, unsigned letters go straight into the trash. I'm just being very honest with you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The gospel life is a way of life. And if we live out Matthew 5 as followers of Christ, the world will be transformed because we are called to be in and among the world, not separate from the world. That the Lord would through our witness, like in the end of Matthew 5 or in the next couple of verses, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are. So let your light shine before men. 
Show them why you can have joy if your rights are taken away. Show them why you can have joy even in the midst of sickness and hardship because great is your reward in heaven. Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among you. It doesn't say this is Jesus' mindset and you can do whatever you want. No, it says you should have this same mindset that was Christ who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Brothers and sisters, be a servant to sinners. Wash dirty feet because Jesus washed yours. This is what we are called to. This is our mission. The church is the servant washing dirty feet with the truth and love of Jesus. Priests for sinners, advocates for the world, standing on their behalf with the truth and the goodness of Christ. And this is why we are sending and mobilizing people here locally and globally to go, not only here to this nation, but to the nations. And this is a narrative, a story that begins in the Old Testament and runs clear to the end of the New Testament. Going to the nations is nothing new. It has always been God's plan. Genesis 12, Jesus, or God, told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and bless him who, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah 19, he pictures the restoration of Assyria and Egypt. One day when Assyrians and Egyptians, the arch enemies of Israel, will come down and worship at Yahweh's feet. Isaiah 56, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark shows Jesus immediately, straight away, with an urgency, going from one place to the next, sharing the truth. He is the prophet whose message must be heralded in all the world. The Gospel of Matthew, in that beautifully, Matthew beholds the king to whom universal authority has been given. And then he issues a command to his people that all the nations be discipled and united into a single body under the lordship of the triune God. The Gospel of Luke. This is the God who has entered our world as a man and as our Savior. The Gospel of John, prolifically saying that God loves the world and that he came for the world for his heart and purpose is to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, ethnicity, language group, people group, background, come to the throne of God so that we can see Revelation 7 fulfilled. And that is this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're going to the nations, brothers and sisters. And it begins here. The United States of America is a nation. Let's begin by making followers of this nation. And then look for the nations around you. Praise God that Afghans are coming to Virginia. What an opportunity. 
I pray that Christians in the church will rise up and say, we're glad to see you here. Let me show you the love of Jesus. This mission statement that I have laid before you, this is what we are about, albeit not perfectly and not without frailty and failure at times. But this is our course. This is the direction that we are charting. And I ask you to be involved in this, not just by yourself, but do this as a people. Own this together. Use your gifts. Use your roles. Use your abilities to build this local church. And you say, but you know what? I'm not going to the nations. You know what? If you are building the kingdom here, you're using your gifts, you're sacrificially committed in building the kingdom here, you can confidently say, I am going to the nations. Why? Because my church is going to the nations. We are one body, one people. They say only the missionaries go to the nations. No, they are the ones through whom we go to the nations. But if you're an engineer and you're committed here, you can say, yes, I am going to the nations because my church is going to the nations. Yes, I am preaching Christ because my church preaches Christ. Now still look for the nations around you. Look for opportunities to preach and to teach Christ, but own this as a body and as a people of God. Let's do this together. Whatever your role is on the ship, Whatever it is, do it with all your might. But beloved, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. And though the storms rage and the waters roar, may we with confidence be able to stand before the Lord Jesus and he will say, well done, how good and faithful servant you kept me first. And all God's people said, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for your grace and your goodness. Help us to stay true. Help us to be gracious with one another in disagreement. Help us to make disciples and followers that bring you glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning and before you are dismissed, we do have a family that is going back to the nations and we're going to pray for them as a church. Justin Lindsay Mitchell and their children, go ahead and come on down. Justin Lindsay, they are serving in Japan. Japan is one of the most unreached areas in all of the world. In terms of few believers, a great harvest opportunity. Justin Lindsay and kiddos, come on up. And would you pray with me as we send them forth? Father, we love you and thank you. And pray for this dear family. And we send them forth. Through them, heritage is going to the nations. But I also pray that you would raise up those who would take on their primary role also as goers following their example. We pray that you would fulfill your glory and goodness through our frail vessels that we are and specifically through Justin and Lindsay. Give them endurance and joy to abide and rest and to work from their joy in you rather than working to attain something. 
I pray that you would strengthen them for the task that lies ahead. We thank you for this morning and we bless them. Heritage family, all together and all God's people said, amen. God bless, you are dismissed.